Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest, and uh, I'm very excited for my guest today. It's funny, uh, I got in touch with her with a past guest, uh, actually the record-setting guest, Wendy Liebman, who's been on the show five times. And if you don't know who Wendy is, people, you have to go check her out. She's only been one of the best comedians in the country for the last 30 years. But Wendy knew my guest, and then I bothered Wendy to get me in touch with her because my guest has started an, an iconic band who I love and I think everybody loves and my guest is Vicki Peterson. How you doing Vicki? I'm really well. How are you doing Steve? Thanks I'm for good. having me I'm on. Good. I know. Now, how do you know Wendy? Because I mean you guys are both popular people. Is it is that how you guys run in certain circles or how do you know her? Well we did meet at a, at a Hollywood party. Yes <laughs> we did. But um, it's just it's funny. It's like she um, she's married to Jeff Sherman um, who is the son and nephew of the famous Sherman Brothers songwriting team from Disney, uh, you know, wrote Mary Poppins, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I ran into both of them with my husband at, at a party, and it was just a sort of mutual admiration society formed immediately. Um, it was kind of an instantaneous friendship with, with Wendy and her husband. They're just lovely, lovely people, so funny, both of them and um welcoming and charming and we ended up running into them again at another party at mickey dolan's house and and that's when wendy and i really uh, had a good conversation and realized we we've lived parallel lives in some of our personal aspects and and uh we just really connected that's so cool now now for you i read somewhere that you did you start playing guitar very early like did you always have a guitar with you or, or when did you get into music and was your family musically inclined well, my, my parents were both music fans, and luckily my dad was hip enough to love Top 40 Radio. So we had Top 40 Radio going on in the house pretty much 24-7. Um, I mean, I'd go to sleep to it at night. And um, they weren't so much instrumentalists. They both liked to sing, you know, church choir kind of level of singing. But, yeah, I picked up a guitar very early, I've got pictures of me in kindergarten with a little plastic guitar from Sears. But um, my first serious guitar was in the fourth grade, so I was nine, and I talked them into buying me this uh, Rickenbacker copy called an Electro, and it was really cool. Now, and it had an amp. It how, was good. See, what's crazy is like nowadays, I can see like a kid finding out about a really cool, cool guitar because there's the internet. But how are you finding out? And like, what were, what kind of music were you listening to? And what kind of music did you want to play at nine? Because I know at nine, I tried to play the trombone and I sucked. I don't know why I wouldn't play the trombone. <laughs> but how did you, what, what were you listening to? And how did you find out about such a cool guitar? Yeah, I got lucky with that. And it was very, very old school because this was like small town. It was in the San Fernando Valley, but it was it might as well have been somewhere in Idaho because it was the, the local music store was trying to drum up some business and no pun intended. And uh, they they were gathering some of the local kids who were kind of hanging out at the store. They just hang out at music stores anyway. And, um, you know, these little fourth graders and they convinced me to convince my parents that I needed to get in this quote-unquote band, which they were trying to start, which was really just a way to, for them to sell lessons and, ergo, guitars. So it all went down great because I ended up with this very cool electric guitar and Rickenbacker, like a genuine Rickenbacker amp, and uh, the guitar case looked just like George Harrison's. It was very cool. And, um, 
and ended up taking guitar lessons for maybe four months. And then my girlfriend and I just dropped out of that. And, and I just started playing, I started writing songs because it just seemed easier. <laughs> and I'm lazy. So that seemed like an easier way to do it. So I started writing songs at nine. So what, what kind of songs are you writing? Like, because at nine, what are you talking about? Because, because we're nine. I mean, what is that, third grade? Yeah. What kind of songs were well, yes. you playing? I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it amazes me sometimes that some musicians, they just they start writing songs. I mean, at nine, I was collecting baseball cards. I know. You could have written about that. Yeah. Um, no, I was, of course, emulating the Beatles and, you know, the Dave Clark Five and the Stones and the Birds. And so I was sort of... I had an older sister, thank God, because she was my musical curator and she had the bigger allowance. So she spent almost every penny she got pulling weeds or doing errands on on her record collection. So she had a phenomenal record collection and I dug into that as much as I was allowed to do so. So I was very influenced by a lot of different um, bands from the 60s, even though it kind of was too young for that but i listened to it anyway and then um and then in the early 70s the singer songwriter thing really kind of hit me so Joni mitchell um james taylor you know warren zevon i mean people who were writing just beautifully uh, almost like confessional songs things that that seem to relate now to a nine-year-old i'm writing you know three chord songs about i think it's love right. but um <laughs> because of course i always had crushes so there's a there's always a reason to write a song so when do you start deciding to get a band and when do you decide that, you know, this is my life calling? I mean, at nine, we changed, but you just kept playing. What was your, yeah. when did you start deciding, I'm going to get a band together? Or did you just think in the beginning, think you'd be like a singer-songwriter because you loved singer-songwriters? No, it's funny. I never, I never saw myself with a quote-unquote solo career. I always saw myself in a band and hence I've been a serial band member most of my adult life. So yeah, I started, um, well, I did write by myself through, you know, middle school and, and into high school, but then met, um, this wonderful British young lady named Amanda and she and I became best friends. And even though she had no prior training or musical inclinations, really, she ended up being my perfect songwriting partner. And um, and so she and I were sort of the we were sort of female Simon and Garfunkeling for a while, and then expanded it out. And it's, this is what happens when you're in a high, a high school. You just like your friends or become your bandmates, which is not always a great idea, but it's a it's fun. It's a good way to start. So I did start a band with my friend Amanda, and then um, ultimately my sister Debbie, who was the little sister, kind of hanging around and wanting to do anything, you know. And it turns out she could do anything. And if we had wanted her to play trombone, she would have. You know, she was that kind of a musician. So she ended up on drums. So you sat there. She got on the drums. Now, when did the bangles start coming in? When did that start to happen? That happened in college or just, just post-college for me. I actually left. was at UCLA and left shy of my uh, senior year. <laughs> Hello. Um and Debbie and I, at that point, we were sort of down to just the two of us because um, Amanda went off to get a real job and, <laughs> and a history degree. Um, and so it was just the two of us, and we kind of had a moment of, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, and then this was December, and John Lennon was assassinated. And it just threw us for such a loop, and 
made everything feel so surreal and like, what are we doing? This is crazy. Life is too short. Um, and the phone rang and I picked it up and it was this young person talking to me and she was calling an ad that had been placed by Debbie, my roommate, who used to, who was in our band and who we had just fired <laughs> a little awkward. We had just fired her, but this, um, guitarist had put an ad in the paper and Susanna was calling in response to, to Lynn's ad. So it's convoluted, but the bottom line is I picked up a telephone uh, call and had like a 45 minute conversation with a stranger. Um, the corner piece of which was Lennon's association and assassination and, um, and what it meant to us. And, Within a couple of weeks, Debbie and I were in Susanna's garage and we were playing music together. And that was the beginning of that marriage. <laughs> now, what was it like back then to form an all-girls band? I, you know, I talked to um, Janet Gardner from Vixen and they were uh -huh. more heavy. And she said how that, you know, that was completely, that was like a guy's world. It was different. But for you, was it, were you thinking, you know, there may be some obstacles because you're an all-women's band? Because... Back then, it didn't make a difference how good the music was. People were sort of backward ass. Yeah, and, you know, you definitely were looked at as a, a, a folly of some sort. You were, you were the dancing flea, for sure. But um, but since I had done it since high school, I mean, I, I started a band with my girlfriends. And, and the occasional boy would pop in and out of the band, but usually he'd get fired, and, and we'd go back to the, the women. And it didn't occur to me really that there'd be any reason why this wouldn't be a going concern it just didn't i was willfully and blissfully blind to what obstacles there would be and when we did come across them and we did of course we just bulldozed through them i mean really um you know if someone tried to boss us around we we started out with the with the bangles or the bangs early on um playing a lot of uh, punk rock bills and parties and um, so we're this little pop band playing really, really fast and loud, but still very, you know, psycho pop. And, um, you know, and there were definitely guys who wanted us to go away, A, or B, get out of their way. And so we would, you know, we'd have to stand our ground several times. But as far as the overarching view of things and, oh, my gosh, we're, we're endeavoring into a man's world, we'll never make it, it just didn't. It didn't register. I didn't allow it to register, I think. Well, that's awesome. Now, how did you come up with the term, the, the name, The Bangs, then how did it become The Bangles? <laughs> well, The Bangs actually was inspired by an article in a 1965 copy of Esquire magazine that Susanna's dad had, God bless him. And um, we were looking through it just for inspiration one day, knowing that naming a band is one of the most difficult things um, you do when starting a band. And um, we had gone through a couple of candidates before that, um, always finding that someone else had it, had the name. So we came across this article, and it was about the wild hairstyles of the day. So there were things like the, um, oh, the, you know, Uber Ronettes do or something like that. And one was called the Supersonic Bang. And we thought, that is a cool title. And let's do this. And we called Debbie. She was at her day job. We called her up and said, hey, let's be the supersonic bangs. And Debbie was like, mm, I don't know. Sounds too much like teardrop explodes. And it was like, okay, it doesn't sound anything like teardrop explodes, right. but I get what you're saying. So what about just the bangs? And it was like, yes, that's a yes. So we were the bangs for probably 
a year and a half, feels like a long time, but it was maybe not even that long, but we were uh, signed to Miles Copeland's management company during that period of time, had already recorded an EP, had done the artwork saying the bangs, um, and we got this letter from a band in New Jersey All right. <laughs> called the bangs <laughs> saying that they wanted something like 40 grand for the name. And we said, well, we'll just add a few letters. Thank you very much. So we went to a Mexican restaurant and sat around and scribbled on napkins and came up with the bangles. Now you said you were with a uh, Copeland's, uh, management team then you got a record deal how did that all happen were you playing gigs and someone saw you or how did you get that deal early yeah we were we were playing all over we played a couple of times a week it seems we were playing with a lot of other uh, of our friends bands you know friends like the dream syndicate three o'clock um you know green on red we just we had this really fun community and we played as much as we could and there was one night when um a woman who was sort of helping us um, she was helping us get our little 45 around out to uh, stores, and and uh, she came up to us and said, "Okay, guys, don't freak out, but Miles Copeland is here." And I went, "Oh, really?" And and Susanna went, "Who's Miles Copeland?" <laughs> and, and I said, "Don't worry about about it." I go, he, I go, he manages the, you know, he, he owns IRS records and, and, uh, you know, so he's probably just looking for another go-go. So I was very sort of cynical about it. And, uh, Susanna's, you know, her response was something like, fine, you can buy me a beer. And so we were, we were sort of unfazed and, and undaunted and unimpressed, but played our set. And then he wanted us to come to the office, I think the next morning, actually, um, which we did. I met him at his offices at the AM records lot and uh, he sat down and just was kind of, kind of in his adorable way, which is odd. I don't know if you know Miles at all. He's he's actually a lovely man and and a really good idea man, but he's he's a little odd. And uh, he kept putting on this fake Texan accent, which was confusing. But um, the the bottom line was that everything he said were things that made sense to me, which was like we're not gonna we're not gonna go to a major label right now. We're gonna continue doing what you're doing. Um, let's record an EP, um, the aforementioned EP, and get that out to the world and sort of start really building your base, basically, is what he was saying, which made sense to me. We had never in our lives recorded, um, you know, or, or shopped a demo tape. We did rec- do some recording, but we never took a demo to a label saying, please give us a deal, please give us a million dollars and make us stars. We just, it just never felt like the right thing to do. So this all made sense to me, and that's exactly what we did. So. Well- well, how was the transition when you went into the studio? Because, you know, I've talked to bands that, you know, when you're playing live, you're playing live and you go in and you said you guys played fast and you're on punk, playing some punk rock shows. You get your set done. What's it like when you went into the studio? Because it's got to be a completely different world because now it's like take two, take three, take four, you know, bring this up. You know, Vicky, hit this thing. Susanna, hit this. What was it like when you guys yeah. first hit the studio? Was it was it frustrating, but probably very exciting too? Well, it's it is a completely different world, actually. And and the recording that we had done previously had been very minimal. I don't think Susanna had ever done a proper recording. Um, Debbie and I had done little, and um, and it is a completely different. Uh, skill set and it's a different way of approaching your music although we always even up until the very last record um would begin the record all of us in a room playing the songs together 
And that always felt good. Um, that was that was how we like to start things. And then this being the 80s, what would invariably happen was pretty much every note that was played was then replaced with a triggered sound or this or that or redone or this or that. You know, so that whole, you know, the first round of takes where we sound like the Rolling Stones, you never hear that. You're, you're going to hear this other version. So um, it's, it's kind of interesting, actually. But it was it was a huge education to to listen to things differently. You're, you're approaching the construction of a track as opposed to playing a song to communicate a, a message you're you're con, you're building something and our producer our first producer uh, was david Kahn, and um i mean out, speaking post ep the first the ep was done with craig leon and god bless him he was he was of the same mind he was kind of a rock and roll guy and it was like here let's throw the amp in the bathroom for some cool reverb and uh let's go and you know that's how we made that first ep was very much done like that very quickly um but david Kahn had a different approach and he did things very methodically and architecturally now when did your music start getting hot was it was with the ep how was it you know how were people reacting to the ep and then how did the ep go from there to doing a full album well the ep did its job which is what um helped build a fan base for us, helped us play places outside of Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, San Francisco, um, you know, pretty, pretty local because we didn't have any money, but, um, but it got some attention and, um, and a little bit of airplay, especially with Rodney Bigenheimer here in LA and, um, but other, other places too, KXLU played us and, and some other stations too. So we started just getting, getting out there a little bit and, so, um, so, so yeah, it, from there, the first record changed that where it's the first record kind of introduced us to college radio and that's where we started touring and, um, we, we, off that record, we also toured internationally actually with the English beat. So that was a blast. How was it? How was it touring? I mean, internationally, you always think it's like, wow, you know, you're young you're sitting there, you're traveling the world on, you know, what was, what was that like touring? And it must've been, you know, you guys must've wanted to take in so much because you're seeing places and just, and you're seeing it different, you're seeing it differently than a tourist would see it. Was it, was it just eye opening and did you love touring overseas? I did love touring. I still love touring. Um, so that makes me a strange person because I can't say that for most of my bandmates. Um, but, but touring overseas, you know, when you're in your early twenties, you're thank God have a little more energy. So the, the brutality of the jet lag and the schedule that you put on, um, at least for us, when we went over uh, to Europe, you're introduced to something that I think is probably an anachronistic idea. And that is the promotion tour. And where, whereupon after making your record, you then go out into the world for, you know, upwards to nine weeks and just talk about your music and pretend to play your music on TV. And you're not actually ever playing a concert. And that becomes a little mind twisting. Um, but that being said, you know, we, we you know, got to see Tokyo and, and uh, you know, in London and all, all parts of England. We did a lot of touring in the UK. Um, 
and then just and then when you finally go back over again and do the proper tour it's a blast i mean you're you're playing for audiences that you know react differently all over the world and and so it's a great um education now you're playing and you're you know you're getting a fan base when when is it that you break when is it and what what do you associate with why you guys caught fire and i mean i know walk like egyptian was like the number one song of you know 1987 but what what was the break and and how did that change your lives because it must be crazy that you know you're going around and and then everywhere you hear your song i mean for something you know it's something that people can't comprehend what when when was that break that just broke you what do you think caused that break and then what happened after well obviously the first big hit that we had um outside of college radio um was manic monday and um i think that happened partially because prince wrote a song that um almost everyone can relate to everyone's had that kind of a day everyone's had those sort of concerns um, the idea that the song came from Prince is sort of beautiful and, and uh, a slight dichotomy because of who, or slightly ironic because of who he is and the lifestyle he leads. But um, uh, he's definitely gotten up too late to figure out what to wear. I know that because he's <laughs> he, was, he was definitely that guy. Um, but he but because he wrote it, it also gave the label something to kind of hold on to because they were able to promote it that way. And I think that was, that was to be realistic. I mean, we're, you know, obviously a, a band with some talent and some, you know, some reasons to like the band for, you know, on several levels, but um, it gave the label something to, to hold on to and to, to deal with when they had a song that was written by Prince, you know, for us, even though, you know, he wrote it for himself. But anyway, you know, it was, it was, it was a big deal. So that was, that helped that get out, get that out to the world. And that was the first time other than listening to Rodney on the rock. Um, that was the first time we heard our song on the radio out in the real world. And that is a, a unique and really special moment because it's, it's out of your control. You're, you're, I think the, one of the first times, one of the most memorable times we were on a, a walk in, we were in Washington DC and we were doing a little like jog before a show and uh, I think it's just Suzanne and Debbie and I, and we were at a, stopped at a red light and a guy pulls up in a convertible and he's got the radio on really loud. And I'm and we, it, all, we all kind of looked at each other like, what is it? Is that a monkey song? What is that? What is that? Wait, because it sounds familiar. You know it in your the fiber of your being. You can't. It really took us probably six, seven seconds to go, oh, my God. It's, like, it's uh, you know, Manic Monday. You know, it's us. It's like that Partridge Family moment, you know. It's um, um, it was definitely that was a moment, and um, but other than that, you have to realize that we would release the record, and then we'd go over to Germany or the UK and do promotion while the record's getting airplay in America. So then we'd come home, and it's now it's already off the charts in America. So so the the thing of it being ubiquitous. That happens more now, like in the last 10 years when I'm in the drugstore, than it ever did in the 80s for me. Now, because we were out of sync. 
now, what was it like uh, shooting a video back then? And, and just and video had such impact. You know, it's so funny. I talk to people about MTV and, and you tell people like, yeah, it used to be all videos. And, and so many of us found bands and that's how we found bands because we'd be glued to the TV and they were cool videos. You know, it wasn't like the old videos were just some guys crooning. You know, they had, they had young hip directors doing them. What was your experience with the videos and how did the productions go up as you guys got more popular? Well, they... They were always kind of fun because it was like like making little movies, um, and we always uh, had a choice of, of directors and or conceits and, and ideas and treatments. We'd have a few to choose from. Um, so I, you know, I enjoyed the process. Like I said, it was kind of like shooting a little movie. You're, you're, it's, it's freakishly exhausting. I mean, who knew doing miming for twelve hours is going to take it out of you? But it, it does, <laughs> and. Um, some of them were more fun than others. Um, I do really remember shooting the video for Manic Monday because we were just scampering all around downtown Los Angeles, and which in early early eighties, you know, was pretty scruffy. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, but but I don't know. It was just it was fun. And then some of the other ones, you know, um, the making of the In Your Room video was just completely frenetic and insane, and felt like we were really on an acid trip. And um, so it's just it was um, it was interesting. It always struck me as slightly shocking at how expensive they were. And of course, the band pays for at least half of it because they consider it you know, part of your career. So, you know, that was always like, OK, well, I could have just bought a house, but no one found the video. <laughs> now, do you have a say in that? Like, can't you tell your managers, hey, we don't want to pay this much? Can't, is there a say you have? Because to be honest, you know, a video when you have a great song, a cool video is great, but the huge production values aren't going to push it that much differently. Yeah, I don't know. There was a different uh, thought process at that time where, where a great video could actually change your outcome. A, a great video could actually push you to number one. Um, it's not like today where you really just want to, you know, sit in your living room and then post it on YouTube and you're good. <laughs> and, um, thank God, because that's what we're doing with the action skulls. <laughs> you know, just we were doing that last night, just like playing songs acoustically and uh, and taping them with our iPhones and you know, posting. We're going to be posting that stuff, and that's that's video making in 2017. <laughs> Hey, it's great that way. So now when, when Walk Like Egyptian comes out, did you ever fathom it would be such a huge, huge hit? I mean, as a, as a singer-songwriter, and you've been doing it, at this time, you've been doing it for years. I mean, you you know, oh, you, you know what you like. And when you heard that song, did you think that it would just become like this giant, giant hit? I mean... I mean, was it something to your musical liking? And did, I mean, what was the whole process went through your mind when you saw that come to just from fruition? Yeah. Well, the the record that that's that ended up on was almost finished um, when David Kahn brought in this demo. I think we were at a rehearsal. We were like going over the last couple songs that we were going to track, and. Um, he brought in the demo and he goes, I just want to play this for you. And so Liam Sternberg wrote the song and the demo was sung by um, Marty Nixon, who's amazing. And, um, and it just struck me like, well, that's a song we'd never write. <laughs> you know, like that's something that is so out there that um, 
this could be really fun. And actually, it's I, I used to get a little, you know, snobbish about listening to demos because I wanted most of the Bengals songs to come from band members and um, fewer outside writers. That was always my wish. Didn't always come true. Um, but that was always what I wanted because I wanted the band to be the point of view and, and to be the voice. But um, but this song was it was smart and funny and weird, really weird. So it wasn't until we recorded it, um, which wasn't really a picnic either, because it's it's actually a difficult song to sing. It doesn't seem like it would be, but because the melody is sort of robotic, um, it's not you're not swooping into notes. You got to hit every note, and it's it's not easy actually. Um, and there's a lot of words, <laughs> so. We, we tried it, and then once we got the track going, I thought, oh, my God, this is so infectious. Um, we built a really fun rhythm track using, uh, you know, percussion and a drum machine and live drummers and the crate, like a uh, trash can lid. Um, you know, there's some, some really fun sounds. Uh, David Kahn had these scary-looking Mexican dog head shakers that had a really specific sound, and they were really demonic-looking. Um but it sounded great. And so as soon as that was finished, I remember our manager was asking me, so what do you think uh, should be released as a single? And I said, well, I said, Walk Like an Egyptian would probably be my favorite, but they'll never do it. <laughs> they'll never release that as a single. That's ridiculous. So so there you have it. <laughs> I called it, but I also thought the label wouldn't go for it. Now, when that hits, then your popularity grows even more. Now you pro you start headlining shows. How does it change when you're going from playing, you know, you've you played in clubs, you're playing in opening for the English Beat. How does it change when you start playing in bigger venues? And how is a, as a, you know, when it's you guys, I mean, when the people are coming to specifically see you, what goes through your mind when you hit the stage? Because you want to deliver and you guys, and you're all pros and you've been doing it forever. What is it like when you sit there and all of a sudden you get to that pinnacle where it's like, okay, we have the biggest hit out there. People are coming to see us. Everybody knows that song. What is it like for you? And is there pressure on you to, you know, to perform, you know, to the top level? Well, I think that pressure's there every night. It doesn't matter where you are or or what the venue is. Um, and we, for whatever reason, um, ended up even while we were you know having big hits we were still opening up for people and it's something that's it's a bit of a mystery to me these days I'm not sure why we were opening up for mr mr you know when we had we had radio hits as you know many as they did and it's it's a bit of a it's a, it's a bit of a mystery but um but then we would play you know we would just play like large clubs and and yeah, there is definitely a different feeling in the audience when they've come to see you and not like found out that you were on the marquee after they got to the venue. Um, you know, obviously it's 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 a huge different energy level. But to be honest, I actually am enjoying it more these days, like in, the, in this current century when we've been touring, um, because people really do come with a sense of what they're going to get. Um, they're excited. They've you know brought their parents or their kids, you know, depending on which way you're falling in the demographic. And, and they're there just to have a really good time and, and, uh, and possibly have some great memories. So, um, you know, so I really do enjoy that nowadays. And, you know, I mean, back then it was always a struggle. There was always something going on. It seemed like, 
um, to sort of take it away. And we, you know, we never had the, you know, sold out at the forum night. It just didn't happen for whatever reason. <laughs> now, when you guys were playing, when I know I, lo I personally, I love your the cover of uh, Hazy Shade. Of, it's so great, and the guitaring is just so kick-ass. How does that change from, like, you know, because Simon and Garfunkel, I remember I had a CD of Simon and Garfunkel, or a cassette of Simon and Garfunkel in college, and my friend wrote Wimp Rock on it, and I was like, what? And, and yeah. uh, But how does that to change that song and just make such a kick-butt guitar solo? Because, I mean, I mean, just the sound, I mean, did, did was that in your hands? Did they say, you guys change this? It's Because it's, it's an amazing song. Well, we did it in our early set. I mean, we, we, I, I found it really early uh, set list from the Bangs, and Hazy Shade of Winter is in there. So we've been playing it since like '81, um, but then it dropped out of the set for years and years. And um, we had an opportunity to put a, a song in the the movie Less Than Zero, and we didn't have a lot of time. It was the sort of thing like we need it tomorrow. What have you got? In, and um, I think it was Susanna, I think I said, why don't we do Hazy Shade of Winter? We haven't played it in years, you know, let's just go do it. And um, so we we just reapproached it and it just seemed like a natural fit to hit it with an electric guitar in the, the Simon and Garfunkel version. He's playing that riff on a 12 string acoustic, which is no easy feat, <laughs> I can tell you, um, and, and a completely different sound. So. You know, so doing it on an electric, it just gave it. It was automatic. As soon as you play that riff with a, you know a little distortion and a and play it loud, it becomes a monster rock riff. Oh, it's just it's one of those things. Just the opening, you know, when you're driving or when you hear it, you know, you're just like, wow! It just captivates you because it's just it, it's kick butt. I mean, that's like a, it's great. So so you 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 guys are doing great. Eternal Flame becomes a huge hit. I know you you came up with the idea, I believe, in Graceland. What happened? Yeah. What happened to the band? And then when when you guys after you guys broke up, what do you what do you do to get you know you love music? So how do you where do you go from there? What happened with the breakup? Why did you guys break up? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, I, there's a lot of reasons. And, uh, many of them were external, and some were internal. Um, you know, we've been doing it for nine years at that point. I mean, Debbie and I obviously been playing in a band for add another four years on top of that um and it become part of your identity it's become who you are you know it's what you do from the moment you wake up um so it was pretty uh all-encompassing in a way that that be, ultimately became unhealthy um we didn't have time off we should have just freaking taken a vacation <laughs> which we never did and um and that, you know, that might have solved it right there. But there were also voices being whispered in ears and things um, being said. And there was a lot of, you know, we were just pretty exhausted and, and felt like uh, all of a sudden you're now you're in your late 20s and your life is zooming by. And, uh, you know, there was some thought like, well, when do you actually, you know, stop and have a family or when do you do this or when, you know, all these things in another world could have worked just fine, but because of the the tension that were going on and because of our work schedule, it was sort of impossible to work things out in a, you know, really familial way, which is kind of how we operated up until then. So um, it was looked on at the time as a hiatus. I didn't believe, I didn't want it 
want the breakup and I didn't want to stop. Um, but I also didn't believe that it was going to be permanent. Permanent. So, so that, so that happens. That. And, and now, then, what? What do you decide to do? You decide to take some time off. I mean, you're in a you're you're a great musician. You know, you have the chops. Everyone knows that you have hits. So it's not like some kid saying, "Hey, I want to join your band." When you sat there, you know, did you take time off right away and just regroup and actually enjoy life a little bit, and then say, "I want to I got to start playing again because playing is in your blood." So I mean, how did what was your process to get back on? You know, what what did you do after the band broke up? I was trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do because I was pretty side, you know, blindsided by the the breakup and um, trying to figure out what that meant to me. And then um, I also had another personal issue at the time, which didn't allow me to just enjoy life and go to Tahiti or something. I, I actually moved to Philadelphia for a year to be with my fiance who was very sick and um and so that kind of changed. That whole next year was was more focused on family and personal health and things like that. And then um, I came out of that to um, a, a group that I felt sort of saved my musical soul, and that was the Continental Drifters. And I met them in Los Angeles. Um, I knew a couple of the members anyway, just from one of them was Mark Walton, who was in the Dream Syndicate, so I've known him for, for years already. And um, so my best friend, Susan Cowsell, and I were performing and writing as the Psycho Sisters. And as the Psycho Sisters, we went to go see this band, the Continental Drifters, to think if we could maybe poach them as our backup band. <laughs> I think that was our original idea. And then we realized, oh, no, 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 this is something too special. And we ended up basically joining the Continental Drifters. So you just had two musical identities in one just now that, you know, basically shaped my 90s. I spent the 90s now in, in New Orleans with the band that migrated back south um, and ended up playing with Continental Drifters and the Psycho Sisters for, you know, 92 through 2002. What was that like? Just because it's something, as you said, it's it's like you're maturing as a musician, you know, you're, and this is a project where, you know, you you said you've been friends with uh, Patricia Kelso for a long time and then you saw these artists that you really dug and then to come together it must be great but what was it like then because it was like it wasn't all the you know hey the bangles are coming hey play this song you know you, you gotta find but what, yeah. as, as, a, as a musician what, that must be an amazing sense of just freedom and real creativity yeah it was very good for me on a lot of levels first of all i needed to just kind of uh sink into the background for a little bit <laughs> i think i needed that um but also to sink into something so to use that overused word authentic because it really was everything that was played was was real very little rehearsing was involved we also set up a situation where we were playing in in new orleans every week and we had uh guest artists come in from all over um and we would learn four or five of their songs and be their backup band. So that that meant that every week we were learning another artist's material. And we had some incredible people um, play with us from Nico Case and, and, you know, Jackson Brown came down. And I mean, we just had a lot of really um, wonderful people that we would learn their material and and do a little mini set with them. And then plus do Continental Drifter song. And we were pretty notorious for playing until two, three, four in the morning. Um, yeah. <laughs> it must have been cool because I mean, you guys just probably loved it and stayed. Now, now, how'd you end up in New Orleans? Well, two of the members um, 
when I met the band in, in Los Angeles, two of the members were from New Orleans. They were native New Orleanians, and they just got homesick. And at that point, Susan, my, Susan Cowsill, um, was marrying Peter Holzapple, who was also in the band, and um, and they decided they wanted to, you know, raise their baby in New Orleans. And so it was a it was a migration. We just I literally commuted for two years from L.A. to L.A., <laughs> um, which was a hell of a commute. But um, then finally picked up and moved. Now, I also know you, you played with the Go-Go's for one tour. Uh-huh. Now, was that just because they knew you and they knew you could learn the music? Because I always think it must be hard for a musician to come in with a band. Like you said, when you would play with uh, in New Orleans, you know, you people would stop by. So you have to learn the set. I also think it must be a hard yeah. process to learn a hard set. And when you're going to the Go-Go's, they have, they have a big catalog. How did they did they get you because they knew you were good and they wanted they of course it was the Go-Go's and they needed a female. How did the, how did you come about that? I mean, and then how is it learning their whole catalog? Yeah, it was fun, really. Um, actually, yes, I did know them, um, and I also knew Charlotte Caffey pretty well. Um, she and I had become friendly, and uh, she was going to call me, and the reason why they needed me is because Charlotte was very pregnant and was not going to be able to fly to these dates in England and and uh, all over the U.S. that they were playing. So she just asked if I would step in for her for this, you know, she was, it was probably two months top. It ended up being more like six months, but... It was a blast. Um, it was really fun to learn their material, how different it was to Bangles, um, and uh, just a very different style of guitar playing. So again, that was very good for me to, to have to step into someone else's shoes. It was also a relief because when you're the side chick, you know, you don't have any responsibility other than showing up and playing your parts right. And, um, you know, you don't have to do the meet and greet. You don't have to worry about how many ticket sales are. It's, it's very freeing. <laughs> so, yeah, I became Vic's side chick. That's <laughs> Now, because no, you, you love the guitar, who are some of the cool guitarist players, guitar players you've got to grace the stage with that as a little kid you probably said this is never going to happen and just as you're growing you know older who are some people that you've got to play with that you just were like wow this is just i'm i'm a little in awe well playing with uh, probably the really top of the list there of people i actually played with um is prince because he did a couple of times just show up at shows and then a little message would come backstage prince is here and he wants to play <laughs> so I'm like okay he can do whatever he wants um so yeah i'd hand him my last fall and say you know let's go and so that was that was really that was pretty great see we played with him actually on a number of occasions and um just a phenomenal musician and probably an underrated guitarist um because he was just a monster um also, actually sharing the stage, um, uh, Lindsey Buckingham, that happened to be at his birthday party, but believe me, standing next to him and watching him play, like from inches away, is stunning. <laughs> He's just amazing. His finger picking and his style is so unique. And just, so that's another fave. So now, now, when did the Bangles decide to start to get back together? How did that happen? Because you seemed like you were very happy playing in New Orleans. You mean it was something that you really dig in your music, and that was you said you know, when you broke up. It was just something that happened, and it came out of nowhere. And of course, everyone matures. How did it? How did it happen? And and were you happy when it started to get together again? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, although I definitely resisted it through the 90s. I, I resisted several calls to action because they were usually framed in a, you know, some sort of, oh, you'll make a million dollars um, sort of nostalgia 80s tour. And I just I never wanted to do that at that point at all. Um, and so really it wasn't, I, I remember Susanna would sort of per periodically call and, and, you know, see if I was at all amenable to the idea. And finally I said, you know what, if we were going to actually be a band and write new material and, and, you know, do something like that, that would be made us a viable band, not just do a, a nostalgia tour, I would be interested in pursuing that idea. So that is actually what we ended up doing. We ended up starting to write songs. Um, and this being the nineties, we were, we were actually literally sending cassettes back and forth <laughs> to each other. Um, and then the opportunity came up to put a song in the movie, um, the spy shagged me, uh, the Austin Powers movie. And that's what got us into the studio for the first time together. Now, when you started writing that, when you're saying go back and forth, how, how did your writing style change? Like you personally as a writer, cause you've, you know, you're going full circle from nine years old to the road how did you did you notice your writing style changing as you got older and then you shared different life experiences i mean how did, and how did you did you and did your actual writing like how you your process of writing change well the process of writing is always sort of expanding because there's so many different ways to do it um you know obviously the idea of corresponding by cassette had not been <laughs> a big uh Part of my writing process early on but um and even just collaboration uh was something i had to sort of relearn not not so i always liked collaborating with a friend and and band partner but when you're put out by your publishing company they want you to go out and write with a bunch of people which is really how it is done in quotes today um very very common where you just go out every day and you write you know four songs with four people you've never met in your life and um that i'm less comfortable with but um but as far as writing with bandmates you know i, I don't know that it's changed that much it's you, you you get in a room and you're having a conversation and you you're sharing little things in notebooks that you had and here this is an idea i kind of had this riff and what do you think of this and maybe this could be kind of like uh you know We'll do something like Sunshine Superman. Oh, okay, that's a good idea. Let's do something. Like, you know, I mean, you go from there, and um, that it really hasn't changed that much. Now, how do you think the record industry has changed since you know? I talked to a lot of my guests about this because you know it used to be you'd go buy an album and that was the highlight. You know, you'd, you'd have to you'd look at the album, you'd examine the album, you'd make sure there was you know at least eight out of 10 good songs, you know, cause you were spending your money and now it's like a single driven world where people don't even listen to albums. How do you think as a, as an artist for, you know, coming from the artist view, how has the record industry changed? Uh, how has it not changed? Um, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's phenomenally different and there's really good things about it and there's really unfortunate things about it. And, and no, you can't pick up a physical copy um, of a record that you already kind of know five songs on it um, unless you order it from Amazon and you've already done your research and you've already perused, you know, Spotify. And, you know, it, there's good things and, and not so good things, as I say. You know, first of all, you can you have access to everybody and at any time. And that's amazing and phenomenal 
and great and annoying all, of, all at the same time. Um, how do you how do you sift through the insane volume of music that's available to you at your fingertips 24 seven and find something that really moves you? You know, the, the gatekeepers have changed. The tastemakers have changed. Again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but so you, you figure out what you like, whether it's, you know, trusting your Facebook friends or NPR or, uh, you know, some other podcast, Steve Cooper podcast, maybe, um, you know, somebody, somebody that you uh, know is sort of in line with your tastes and then you might find something new that you like. Or some people just listen to stuff, you know, they really don't ever listen to new music anymore. And there's that too. But I noticed that most of my young friends, you know, they're literally finding music on, uh, you know, YouTube, which is phenomenal and also sort of scary because the sound quality is so terrible. You know, we spend a lot of time and money trying to get things to sound beautiful and real and like you're in the room and there's air around it and it's not too low endy and it's not, you know, all these things. And then you're listening on your, your crummy earbuds. <laughs> now, so. you said you said last night you were shooting a video uh, on on your phones. What, what was that video for? Um, we were just, like I said, we were, were um, the Action Skulls, which is uh, the project that I've got going on now with my husband, John Cowsill, and uh, Bill Moomy from Lost in Space, yeah, remember? Okay. And he's a, also, a, people don't even realize it's insane what a... Uh, prolific and skilled musician and songwriter he is um we met him you know in recent years actually and know him more as a musician than anything else but um uh anyway that we've we've over the last couple of years have put together an ep or sorry an lp that we really are uh, enjoying and, and it's coming out on the 29th of september officially but again, you know, it's available sort of if you sneak onto the internet and find it, but um, <laughs> officially out on the 29th of this month. And uh, so we were at Bill's place just where we had actually done a lot of our recording and just um, played through a couple of the songs acoustically and and just filmed it just to, you know, just for kind of for our own archives, but also we might end up sharing some of that stuff on our uh, website the Action Skulls website or the Action Skulls uh, Facebook page. How did the Action Skulls, I mean, you guys know each other, but how did you, how did it start? Like, I mean, what was the inspiration? Was it because you wanted to play music with your husband or, I mean, how did it start? Because it's, it's just cool. I love when people start, you know, always are starting different bands and have, you know, you know, it's, cool. how did, how did that start? What, what was the process for you oh guys? Oh my gosh. It, it's, it's hilarious. It's kind of like I got, got, um, invited into a boys club because it really started with bill and john and they they had been running into each other um, when john is john tours with the beach boys so he's pretty much out on the road year round um he happened to be home i think and ran into bill at a uh, i might have even been at a pub show that john's brother bob was playing at the time and uh but anyway they 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 hit it off and they always talked about starting a band it was literally like like how it is when you're in the sixth grade and you're like let's let's be a rock band okay totally what's our name gonna be uh let's call it action figures no i want it to be called the peace skulls okay all right so what about the action skulls that's a great name okay we're totally gonna be the action skulls i mean it's like on that level of like let's be a band okay so fast forward a few months and we're at a christmas party at angela cartwright's house 
um, you know, Bill's television sibling from Lost in Space, and they best best friends for life, those two. And um, and we ended up sitting around the piano singing, you know, Beatles songs and Beach Boy songs and anything else that the guy who was playing piano could play. And my thought process was singing in between these two guys, who very different voices. And we just fell into very natural harmonies that reminded me of like the first time we sang with Susanna and Debbie, or like when I sing with the Cowsills, you know, that people just know where to, where to go. And it, the blend is special. And that's what happened that night. And we just said, okay, we have to do something about this. And that's what started, that's what started Bill on this insane run of, of writing songs and sending us little, what we were calling the bathrobe demos because he would he would be it'd be like three in the morning and he'd be down in his living room uh, recording a song on his phone and sending it to us and um that happened over and over again so finally we got in the studio and started uh, tracking these songs how would you explain the music i mean what is it is it folky is it i mean what 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 is the music how would you explain it it's not folk it's definitely it's definitely rock it's not um I mean, it kind of goes back to all the things we like. So, so there's everything from you know, there's Beatle chords, there's there's uh, birds harmonies, there's you know, Bill thinks it sounds like the Kingston Trio, um, but I think it's it's the Kingston Trio maybe on acid because okay. there's there's some pretty odd stuff going on in there, and then and then there's a lot of uh, vocal trade-offs, you know, like like bands like you know Crosby, Stills, Nash do, and bands that don't, um, you know, even within the the structure of the verse, you know, we trade off lines, you know, which I, which we used to do early days of the bangs, but we haven't done in a long time. Um, but it's, and that makes it really fun and, and kind of special. Now, are you guys playing live gigs or do you plan to start playing live gigs, live gigs when the album comes out? Well, we were talking about that last night. I'm not sure if logistics are going to let us do that. If it does, it'll be very, very special because John is literally uh, unavailable <laughs> most of the year. So that's, going to make that a little difficult but um you know we're going to do as many uh, as many performances as we can when we're in the same room you know and so some of that actually just might be things you'll you'll find online um and a couple of of little tv things that we're going to be doing now what is up with the bangles do you guys i mean are you playing together at all anymore or is there do you plan to play again or what's up well, it's an open it's a, it's an open question. We're always available, um, uh, sort of emotionally and psychologically, but um, just actual logistically has been the the issue. Um, last year, we did some touring, and then we did a series of of LA dates. We sold out the whiskey for three nights just for fun, and had friends come up, and it was actually a blast. So um, thinking about maybe doing something locally this year as well. Um, but nothing's on the book yet. How does it feel though when you go do a show and people show up and as you say, you know, like people show up and then their kids show up and I always think that must be a great feeling to think that your music has, something that you're a part of has been around for a long time. I mean, it must be a very cool feeling when you're playing, you know, on stage and you see a mother with their daughter and they're both wearing bangle shirts. Yeah, that's that's one of the best things. I mean, the fact that it's generational like this. I mean, I have a couple of young friends who are, you know, five and six years old who are very big Bengals fans. <laughs> so um, it's it's. I mean that that makes it feel 
I don't know. It's kind of, it's unreal and it's it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. And now, how many guitars do you have? Because you know, I mean, and and what is your favorite one? Do you have one favorite one? I have a couple of favorites, and it depends on the usage and the mood and where I am. Because there's a couple of guitars that really don't leave the house very often, including my my seventies um, era Les Paul Custom that has broken its neck twice, so it doesn't get to go out on the road anymore. Um, but I also have a 67 Strat that I just absolutely love. And we played that on the, uh, Action Skulls record. Um, so, but for live, I play a Les Paul custom and I play, uh, the Bangles edition Daisy Rock guitar, which, um, substitutes for my Strat because, because it weighs, you know, zero pounds as opposed to the Les Paul which weighs like 20. So, um, and it's, it just is very versatile and it can do the jangly stuff. And it also, you step on a stomp box and it completely rocks. So. See, it's, this must be great. So, so what, what is up in the next near future? Just the action skulls. You're going to promote the album. Is that what's going on? Absolutely. That's what we're focusing on right now. And, um, yeah, my husband just walked in. Hello, John. Hello, Say hello to the fine people. All these fine people. <laughs> so yeah, we're we're focusing on on uh, promoting the Action Skulls this month, and I uh, wish we were launching a uh, international tour, but that's not happening. Um, <laughs> so we're just uh, we're having fun making little videos at <laughs> Bill's right yes, now. Yes, in our spare time. Yes, we don't have much of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to I want to thank you, uh, Vicky. I'm glad we got to talk. Now, your Twitter is at Vicky Bangle. That is correct. Do you, do you tweet a lot or or Bangle. George Harrison called me that once. That's why I use Vicky Bangle. Well, that's um, <laughs> that's a great that's a great man. Mine's just <laughs> Cooper talk because it's my show. <laughs> I I'm I go in spurts, as it were. There, you know, I'm not a person who wakes up in the morning and checks my Twitter feed. I just don't do that. Um, although I will go there. Um, Frighteningly enough, I'll go there for news sometimes <laughs> with with all the caveats in place, knowing perfectly well that, you know, there's things that are not exactly true <laughs> on the Internet. But um, but I do enjoy it and I do um, like to connect with people on Twitter. And then I also have a, a Facebook page, which is uh, Vicky Peterson, the Bengals, because there's other Vicky Petersons in the world. How yeah. dare they? <laughs> well, I want to thank you. For, I, I want to thank you for coming on and taking the time. People go check out. Uh, go at Vicky Bangle, and uh, and maybe you'll you'll find out about the Action Skulls because you post Absolutely about them, you will. and we're gonna check that stuff out. So so people check out Vicky Peterson, check out the Bangles. Go to my website CooperTalk.net. I have over six hundred and thirty five episodes up there. Email me at CooperTalk.net. I'm at CooperTalk on Twitter. I'm Steve Cooper, and don't forget, I'm presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, and you guys have a great day. <laughs>